So welcome to episode 58 of the Cake Watch podcast. Um, my name is Chris Kendall. I, I work for the European Union as a Eurocrat, but I want to stress that I'm recording in a strictly personal capacity. Uh, this is something that we've recorded ahead of time and put out during August to tide us over until we get stuck into the horrors that await us in September. And with me is... Jason Knoll, have I pronounced that correctly? Knoll or Knoll? How do you do it? it it's Knoll. Knoll. Yeah. Cool. So it, I know it looks like Knoll, and in American English, it's you know people say Knoll, and but it's it's Knoll. It's Knoll. So it's a it's a, it's basically a, you're of German origin, I guess. Yes. And um, and it's, it's it's nothing to do with the, the grassy Knoll. It's a different no. kind of Knoll. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Okay. And so, um, Jason, can, can you just introduce yourself, perhaps? Yeah. So I'm, uh, as Chris said, my name is Jason Knoll, and I am a high school social studies teacher in Verona, Wisconsin. Um, Verona is basically a suburb of Madison. Uh, and I've taught uh, now for, I just finished my 17th year, getting ready for my 18th year. So, <clears throat> so you're, a, you're, a, a, you're a Midwest American high school teacher? Yes. And so how, how the hell do you come to know me and do I come to know you and do we come to be talking about Brexit? Yeah, so pretty much every year that I've taught, I've taught some aspect of European history or politics. Um, to high for a long kids. Yeah, yep. Yeah. Um, and then about 10 years ago, I took a class on the EU. It was an independent study with a professor at UW-Madison, Niels Ringa. Um, and then I took his grad class in the spring and I just, I got really into the EU. Um, and it wasn't until three years after that, that I got onto Twitter. So about 2012 is when I started using Twitter. Um, and that's when I started following Chris, you, um, and, and other, uh, EU tweets. Um, and you know, one of the things I really like about Twitter that I think, um, people forget is that it's, you know, it's a tool for engagement. Hmm. Um, and since I wanted to deepen my knowledge and understanding of European politics and the EU, I started reaching out to you and people like John Worth um, and, and others. Uh, and that's how, you know, we became connected. And then, of course, when I took my students there in 2017, hmm. uh, you met with them. Hmm. Uh, and then you Skyped with my students the year after that yeah. uh, about Brexit. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was fun. <laughs> that, that, that's in a nutshell. That's, that's it in a nutshell. So you were, you were over in Brussels recently um, and we yeah. met up again. And um, that was when we said to each other, you know, it could be quite interesting to record the podcast together because it's such an interesting alternative look at all the issues that we discuss week in week out to have that coming from somebody with your background i mean it's really you're you're an outsider to all of this this is something that doesn't affect you directly but you have a personal interest you can give us a sense of how all of this looks to 
Uh, I mean, I don't mean to disparage you in any way by suggesting that you might be average, but but, how does this look to the average American? How... How does all of this stuff come across to people who are not breathing, living, eating this every day, that we, you know, such as we are? Um, well, I think, yeah, I, I guess to, to the average American, they know that something's happening over there. Yeah. <laughs> um, it doesn't, the only, the only reason that I think it's gained a lot of attention is because of the president's tweets. Yeah. Um, talking about the special relationship, you know, at one point, and, but then out the other side of the mouth, you know, speaking very poorly of the British ambassador or the former British ambassador. Yeah. Um, so if you were to say Brexit to somebody, they probably wouldn't know. I think if you were to say, you know, like the UK is leaving the European Union, more people would probably say, oh, yeah, I've heard about that. Yeah. Um, but then not quite a, well, why? What's going to happen as yeah. a result? Um, so, although I did have an interesting conversation with a, an employee of Aldi, my local Aldi, um, who was going over to the UK for a vacation and wanted to know more about it. And I said, well, let me tell you. <laughs> so, little, little, okay. teaching, little teaching lesson in Aldi. <laughs> I have Aldi in the States. Yep. God, who knew? Oh, yeah. Wow. The EU marches on. Wow. Um, <laughs> So, I mean, so that's one angle, of course, which is really interesting, I think, to discuss. Um, But the other angle is also just this trauma that you guys are also enduring at the moment. And uh, I think this is something also that you, you know, that we've bonded over because I think, I don't know, growing up, um, I think I I actually spent some time living in the States when I was a kid, actually. Um, I I don't know if I've even ever mentioned this on the podcast before, but when I was... um, uh, in my, well, I was ten and eleven. I I, um, I I lived in Kansas for a year. My dad did a teaching exchange at a small town university in Kansas, and we we lived out in the Bible Belt. That was pretty interesting. But generally, growing up, um, I would say that there was a certain smug, almost arrogance about growing up in the UK, looking at American politics, thinking. Well, you know, we're obviously so much more effective a democracy than you know than they are, and uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I I think a lot of us have had to eat a lot of humble pie, and also we, we, we look at we look at Americans in different in a different way now. I mean, I, I do. I, th- I think that um, we see how polarized your politics are and how divided you are, and and, and we see that um, you, you simply can't bundle all Americans I mean it's a ridiculous thought anyway bundling what is it 250 million people into a, a single category but you know it's such a diverse country and, and the politics there is so fractured and polarised and, and, and the, dysfunctional yeah and, you know uh, in, in much the same way as I'm afraid it's, it's, it's become in the UK too so you know there's lots of interesting common experiences there to talk about and, and I particularly oh, yeah. wanted to talk to you because you have put your money where your mouth is and you've become engaged in politics yep. as a result as a direct result yeah yeah so I had actually been interested in politics for a long time thinking about running for office and finally after the 2016 election I said well I, I, I think this is a good opportunity for me now to get involved um, because, you know, 
<clears throat> as we've seen, it a lot of the if we're going to make any sort of progress, um, it's going to have to come from the local level here now. Yeah. So I ran, um, I'm actually a county board supervisor in Dane County, Wisconsin. So I represent actually the city and the town of Verona. Um, and uh, it's a two-year term. So, so yeah, so I stepped up and, uh, and ran for office. So, um, so what exactly, so you're, you're doing that on top of your job as a teacher? Correct, yep. And it, we, was, we were saying that it's roughly the equivalent, in, in say, British terms, it's roughly the equivalent of a kind of uh, local councillor, parish councillor, but local councillor. Yeah, um, yeah. So, so the, the county itself has probably about 300,000 or so, uh, maybe a little bit more, 350,000 total population. That's pretty um, big. And, that's pretty big. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that, that's, that's much more, that's bigger than uh, your average town or city council in the UK um, perhaps not quite as big as a, as a county council but I mean that's pretty big and, and I this is this is one angle that I find really interesting in talking to to Americans is, is we, again we tend to simplistically look at our Anglo-Saxon model and assume that there's a lot of read across especially some of the more um, vocal um Active transatlantic advocates, but actually, the U.S. has an entirely different political. You have a federal system of government. Yeah. So you guys get, I think, the kind of thing that we're talking about in the EU. I think much more easily and more naturally and more instinctively than than the British do. And 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 you, I mean, what what you just said, you've got this awful dysfunctional federal government at the moment. Federal politics in the U.S. Is, is basically not working. Oh, well, federal and our state. State politics is also the same way. Here in Wisconsin, it's ridiculous. Really? Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, the last elections, um, so the 2000, let's see here. The, so we just had um, the 2018 election brought a new governor. Um, but to give you an example of how weird our system is, is the Democrats in the state of Wisconsin for the state assembly received 1.31 million votes, um, but only 36 seats as a result of that. Whereas the Wisconsin Republican party got 1.1 million total votes. So less than Democrats um, and 63 seats. Oh, that's so screwed up. Oh, wow. That really is like us. That's terrible. That's so how does that work at the state level? So we've, all, we've, we've generally heard about the Electoral College at, at, at the federal level. But how does mm-hmm. it work at the state level then? State level is purely popular vote. But the system, the districts are so gerrymandered. Oh, it's because of the gerrymandering, yeah. 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 And in fact, we, the Wisconsin actually, we had a, a Supreme Court, took a case to the Supreme Court over the gerrymandering. Yeah. Um, but it got turned down. So That's diabolical. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah. This, and this is what drives me nuts about our political system. And, and you have a similar something similar with the first past the post. <clears throat> yeah. Um, <clears throat> we have whereas we have a, a strictly a two party system. Um, and I think the UK, I'm, I'm still not quite sure. And, and I don't know if you remember this about two or three years ago. I had sent out kind of an all call on Twitter's of, yeah. you know, how do you describe the party system in the UK? Is it yeah. multi party, two and a half party? Yeah. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, so I would say that that's at least an advantage that the UK has right now over the US as far as the political structure is set up is that you can at least vote for more than two parties. Well, well one, two parties. <laughs> well, you, you can, but <laughs> if you do, you'll generally waste your vote unless you live in a, a sort of certain, in, in, a, in a few speci- special constituencies. But yeah. No, it's um, it's really interesting. I mean, we we really have begun to see the flaws um, much too late in many cases of our respective political systems, and it's 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 sobering and, and quite frightening. Um, we're recording on uh, what date is it? It's the 20- July twenty. Yeah, so we're recording the day after uh, Boris Johnson became prime minister and appointed his um, his cabinet. In fact, this morning, a lot of the junior ministerial jobs were filled. And it's been a really difficult day, I think. It's fair to say that it's been a day where you didn't really want to look too hard at Twitter because it was just unremittingly bad news if you're British. Um, it's deeply scary. It's by far the most right-wing government this country's ever had, in my, to my knowledge, um, and, and certainly in my memory. But not only that, it's also by far the most, I would say, um, incompetent and, 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 and poorly skilled and, and corrupt. And the kind of people here who... You Are you talking about the UK there or the US? <laughs> well, I'm talking about the UK, but, you know. <laughs> so, you know, it's a pretty... It's a, it, it feels... It feels it feels quite scary and, and and I feel quite depressed and that's one of the reasons why I thought well it could be interesting to talk to you as somebody who said right you know what I'm going to get involved I'm going to get active I'm going to go and do something about this I'm not just going to sit by um, so you know all, all, all um, credit to you for doing that um, I don't know how that translates across to the UK system because our system is so centralised um, there is so little that local government can do. Yeah, and that's that's the same thing here. Um, you know, I'm seeing that I can almost, I could probably have more of an impact in my work as a teacher and running a charity with my students yeah. than I do as, a, as an elected official. Yeah. So, especially because there's a difference between what the county takes care of versus what the cities take care of. Yeah. So, you know, we have county parks and highways and, and some other things. Yeah. So. So it's like parks and rec. Yeah. <laughs> I love yeah. that show. <laughs> so, but, so the characters in parks and rec, they're the civil servants. They're not the elected officials. Right. Right. I don't think we still, we don't see the elected officials in that, do we? No. I can't remember. No. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, and that's the thing is that even at, but what's interesting is that even at the lower level, the lo- the local level, you know, money in politics, I mean, you can see where the, we're not going to get out of this dysfunction anytime soon because of the amount of money that it takes to become an elected official here. Hmm. And I, I think that's one of the big differences between our system and your system is there seems to be, and this is just my minimal knowledge of the British political system of, you know, a, a limit on campaign finance yeah uh, though though they seem to have found all sorts of ways of breaching that and getting away with it um, or even not getting away with it but still doing it because the fines and the the, the, the uh, sanctions are so risible mm-hmm. that there's no, there's no, no disincentive so they they do it anyway um, but yeah in, in, in technically 
there are there are supposed to be limits on these things. But I think that's that's the that's the problem that we're encountering, which is that the the rules. The, rule, the, the rules that govern these things only hold up for as long as people respect them. And um, once people stop respecting the rules, you're in the Wild West. It, you know, it doesn't matter anymore. And I think that's yeah. where we've got to now. I think the problem is that now electoral rules are so routinely flouted and ignored that they might as well not exist. It's the f- feeling I get in the UK. So that again is um, that's that's where institutions begin to crumble and, and come under sustained attack. So. Yep, and that's what leads to the cynicism yeah. towards you know government, yeah. and that's what leads people to you know not want to get involved. <laughs> yeah. You know, well, but would you say that um, would you say that the experience that you've had in the states since twenty sixteen has turn more people off politics or has galvanized people? I think it's galvanized people. Um, and we saw that, you know, with the 2018 midterms. Yeah. Um, it was really, really great turnout um, for the midterms. Yeah. Um, compared to like 2014 midterms was the lowest it's been since World War II. All of a sudden, 2018 sees this huge bump. Um, and it's it's because of, of Trump. Yeah, yeah. Because I think that that's the that's that that's the silver lining of Brexit too, which is that we 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 don't know what will happen, but you definitely feel that there is much more grassroots activism um, than there was before. Um, people are engaged in a way that they weren't in my memory um, on all sides, but um, definitely on our side. You know, so that's got to be a positive thing. I think the, the the thing that we're all that we don't know is how that will then ultimately translate in um, in an election situation. I guess we're mm-hmm. going to find out pretty soon. I think that the the emerging sense here, and pe- by the time people listen to this, they may well know more. But the emerging sense here is that the way in which Johnson has approached setting up his government and his his cabinet. You, you think he's going for an election pretty soon. He, he's expecting or planning an election before the end of the year. And then the big question is, well, is he going to do it is he after Brexit or before Brexit? Or is, is he going to use it to sort of try and force through Brexit? What? I mean, I'm, and that's where a lot of the debate is happening. But I think it feels clear that with his tiny majority, with his ultra-partisan polarizing approach with his creation of so many enemies within his own ranks he has to have it cannot last very long there's going to have to be an election really soon so the fear is that he'll win it (laughs) that's that's what's so scary is that maybe you know he's he seems to be quite good at winning elections um that's one thing that he does seem to be good at and is guess, there any hope? I, I guess is there any hope after the because you get you had you just had local elections a couple months ago, right? Yeah. And it seemed that um, the Tories and UKIP lost a lot of seats, but the Lib Dems gained a lot of seats, and even the Greens. Yeah. Um, for councillors, is there any hope that you know that uh, the Conservatives might lose their majority again? Well, well, I guess they, they're plurality because they don't have a majority now, right? Um, 
I, th- I think that it's impossible to predict. I think that um, the polling would suggest that, yeah, there, 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 there's every possibility that they'll lose seats to um, to the Lib Dems and, and to the nationalist parties in Wales and Scotland. Um, the big question mark is what will happen to Labour's vote? Mm-hmm. Because if, if the Labour vote as appears likely, fails to take off and possibly even shrinks, that may then give the Tories enough of what they need in the places where they need it to still come back with a majority. Um, because of the stupid way in which the, the system works and, and, and the votes count, um, it, 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 it isn't... It, it, the way people in the UK vote in general elections... Um, tends to be more traditional and bipartisan. Um, the, the, the two big parties have traditionally taken the vast majority of votes and it's generally a two-horse race in most constituencies. Um, that may all change. We do seem to be going through a period of flux. <clears throat> um, and certainly a lot of us think it should change and, and needs to change. But ultimately we have a first-past-the-post system. So the Lib Dems could come a very close second r- right across the country and still end up with fewer seats than both the Tories and the Labour Party. That's the insane nature of our politics. Yeah. And, that, and, and people know that, and therefore they get, they're scared. You know, they, they're scared of putting their cross against that third party because <clears throat> they think it's going to be a wasted vote. Yep. And that's, we saw that in the 2016 election... <clears throat> was, you know, well, if you don't want the other person to win, then you need to vote for, you know, this other major candidate um, instead of voting your conscience, say, for, you know, the Libertarian candidate or the Mm. Green Party candidate or, you know, whoever else might be running. You know, it's, uh, well, you know, if you vote for Green, you're throwing your vote away and you're making it more likely that Trump will win. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and it's... It's 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 a stupid system that you people elect you know voters have to start making all these tactical and strategic decisions um, in in order to try and affect the overall outcome. When really, what you want in a democracy is people just to be able to vote with on the platform. That's what you yeah. want, and that's certainly what I want. And um, to be fair, that's what I've started to do. I mean, I, I've. I, I live in a in a safe seat, or my, my I vote in a safe seat, uh, which means that the 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 MP there um, is is a conservative, and pretty much always will be a conservative. It's an incredibly safe seat, and if it doesn't matter what you vote, I mean, if you vote whether you vote Tory, whether you vote anything else, I mean, it, it's not going to influence the outcome. Yeah. So I have the freedom to just vote with whoever I want to. I mean, I'll say, well, you know, in that case, I'm going to vote with my with with my uh, conscience, and I'm going to vote green. And I, I know that that won't affect the outcome one single jot. But at least I've voted for the party that I actually support. Um, it's it's trickier when you do live in a marginal constituency and you do have a choice. I, I, what, what's going to be interesting in the in the next general election, which will be coming soon, is whether on the Remain side 
the various Remain parties can form some kind of alliance, some kind of electoral pact, so that they don't take votes off each other. Mm. Um, it, 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 if they can't do that, then I, I think things look pretty scary and bleak because Johnson has a real talent, it seems, for reaching out to a certain type of voter. Um, he's a populist and that's what he does. Um, yeah, and it surprises me just from what I know of him and, of course, what I've seen of him. <laughs> mm. Some of the footage and... Yeah, I mean, even in London, I mean, I was living in London um, and able to vote in London both times he was elected as mayor of London. And I was I was utterly gobsmacked. I couldn't believe that he was elected. I couldn't believe that he was in London. How could somebody like him be elected mayor in London? Yeah. And that really scared me that he and could do that. And that's, I mean, that's the same thing that I felt when Trump was elected, because you, if you watch him and listen to him um, or read his tweets, they're, I mean, this horrible, I don't even know what his thinking process is, right. I, you know, if there is one. Um, there's no message. It's very unclear. Right. Every time you think that he's, every time he opens his mouth and says something, you think, well, okay, that's it. He can't win now. I mean, yeah. that's how, how could anybody win after having said that? And then it doesn't seem to signify. It doesn't seem to matter. So, yep. you, you know, so you, you, all, all the ammunition you've got against people like Trump and Johnson, it seems, it seems wasted. You know, you go, hey, well, hang on, look, look, we've got a tape of Boris Johnson conspiring to beat up a journalist. Doesn't matter. <laughs> doesn't seem to matter. Right, right. right? And and like, same- how can that be? Yeah. And the same thing, you know, just a couple of weeks ago with the at, at the Trump rally of the chance of send her back. Yeah. You know, like we're living in like we're moving backwards. We're not moving forwards here. It seems like we're moving backwards at a rapid pace. And that's the scary part. So, I mean, what, what's your advice to people on this side of the Atlantic in terms of uh, British people in particular? What's your advice on on surviving this period and resisting and. well i don't know uh can can i say drink heavily (laughs) (laughs) that's maybe a wisconsin thing um yeah well you know i and i think for me i struggled whether or not like in leading up to trump getting elected and then after his election i struggled with you know do i stay here in the u.s or do i move somewhere else um and you know i think it might be and and that's the thing is you know do you stay and try and fight the good fight even if it's like just ramming your head into the wall and you know that it's not going to make that big of a difference or do you move somewhere where you know people share your values for the most part Mm. um because i think here in the u.s in particular and this you know, I, I know you're looking for something positive for the British, <laughs> for, for your listeners. I just, I, I don't know. Um, when I see everything that's happening here, I think about, you know, I have three kids. Um, there's no way right now the American dream is dead. Uh, you know, they're not going to have a better life than I have. Yeah. Um, you know, that was, that was the idea was children would have a better life than their parents. Yeah. I don't know if that's going to happen. So... Yeah. Um, I, I guess, you know, just 
find something you're passionate about and start working on it if the government's not going to do anything about it that's that would be my advice yeah <laughs> knit <laughs> <laughs> knits yeah um, you know, I, I do have a group of, of students who are really devoted. Um, we have this charity where our mission is to just help children and families um, living in our county who are affected by poverty. Mm. You know, because we have, in the world's largest economy, we have an unbelievable uh, rate of children living in poverty. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, no, and, and, and I guess a lot of, Amer I mean, Americans will tend to fall into two camps so there'll be those who see this and and find this uh, an affront they find this an offensive thing to be in a country so that is so rich and yet at the same time so poor and they want to do something about that and they consider that to be you know they're they're patriots and therefore they want to do something about it and then you've got the other lot who are like uh well you're talking us down and um if they're if they're there it's because they deserve it and um you know this is you're anti-american if you if you if you if you draw attention to that or if you if you exaggerate yeah. that and I mean, that's 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 where we are in the, in the uk now in the uk where um you get people who will bang on about the uk you know still want still the fifth biggest economy in the world still um a former heavyweight um it's special it's exceptional um and will absolutely ignore the data that is right there available and visible to everyone which says we have the greatest divide between the rich and the poor we have uh, a cluster of the poorest regions of, of of northern europe are all in the uk uh we have a food bank crisis we have an austerity crisis we have we are undergoing what um you could describe as de-development I mean, on, on key indicators and key development indicators, we're actually moving backwards. So, you know, is it patriotic to say my country's going down the toilet? Yeah, it is, because you don't want yeah. it to, right? You want, right. You, know, you want, you, I mean, patriotism is about wanting the best for your community and your society and the people that you live with and, and, and your, 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 your fellow citizens. It's not about, you know, um, making Britain great again or making America great again. I mean, yeah. <laughs> what does great mean in this context, you know, so. Yeah, well, and, and even so, you know, we have this group of newly elected of, of you know, representatives in Congress um, who've been really vocal um, against Trump and who Trump has labeled, you know, the four horsemen and, you know, I'm referring to the, the, the four female yeah. um, representatives um, but there is a big movement here kind of, you know, calling for we have the world's largest economy. Why don't we have universal health care? Why don't we have yeah. um, paid parental leave? Why don't we have, you know, way cheaper university tuition and fees? Um, and they're being called radical and socialist when I mean, this is like the norm in most other countries around the world. Right. I mean, especially in Europe. Yeah. Um, and but yet here it's something that's completely radical. Uh, and now we're starting to see political pundits actually say, well, they're pulling the Democratic Party to the left, which means it's going to hand the next election to Trump again. Yeah. So yeah. sort of a telling them, look, you need to tone it down a yeah. little bit yeah. or you're going to really, you know, you're just basically just going to have another four years. Yeah. 
Yeah. And that's then the problem of having this two party system is yeah. if the Democratic Party is divided into moderates and sort of your social Democrats, then maybe it's time to split. Yeah. And that's exactly we have exactly the exactly parallel problem with Brexit, which is that you've got uh, people saying, no, Brexit is people like me um, saying Brexit is a bad idea. It is a bad idea in every possible sense that it, it needs to be stopped. We need to revoke. We need to stop it. And then you get the others saying, well, you know, that you're an extremist and, and, and you're only going to help the other extremists. What we need to do is we need to uh, respect the, you know, respect the mandate uh, that, that, that the leave victors got. And we need to find a, a softer way of Brexiting that is less painful. And I'm like, no, <laughs> no, we don't need to do that. You know, there are all sorts of reasons why we don't need to do that, but we, we shouldn't do that. So it's exactly the same kind of fracture, I would say, um, in Britain. Um, and I suppose that's manifesting itself. So I was talking earlier about the Remain Alliance and we didn't really talk about the Labour Party, which in, in our system, you, the, the opposition is the largest, the other largest parts are the opposition is the Labour Party and they, they, their role, I mean, they're the ones who will, are, are assumed to be inheriting power when, when, when it comes time to, to switch. Um, but we're in a situation where the opposition isn't really opposing and doesn't really have, well, we, we won't get into all of this again because we've discussed <laughs> it so many times on the podcast and the listeners know exactly what I mean. But, right. you know, you just get this really, it, it, things aren't working the way they're supposed to work. And you've got this awful dysfunctional government um, that is a minority um, or, well, it's not even a minority now because it, as some commentators have said this is not just a reshuffle of, 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 of a government it is a new government right right and, and, and it has no mandate there's no electoral mandate for this new government and for its program um, it does not govern with the consent of the government so in, in normal times this would be an open goal for any competent opposition yep. but we don't have a competent opposition so it's like Jesus what kind of mess are we in I mean, at least you guys have a competent opposition, I would say, yeah. seeing from here. I don't know. I mean, you've got, you know. I, yeah, I mean, there's definitely, you know, sort of you have your, you're basically either pro-Trump or anti-Trump now. Yeah. Right. There's no sort of Democrats versus Republicans and Greens and Libertarians. It's really just you're either for Trump or against him. Um, and the opposition now, though, I think one of the things we're going to start to see is because we, we have over 20 people running for president. Uh -huh. And I think that is going to lead to I think that could be a big problem for us yeah. um, because it's going to drag on. And sort of what you were talking about earlier, where, you know, you might have this remain alliance kind of saying, well, look, maybe let's band together so we don't take votes away from each other. Yeah. Um, you know, in the U.S., it's, you know, let's band together so that we're not taking money away from each other yeah. because that will lead to votes. Mm. Um, yeah, so I don't I, I don't know, really, the opposition. It, it's so polarized and dysfunctional um, that you could say you're against them, um, but then you're going to face this backlash um, you know, like we still haven't had anybody that, I mean, there's nothing about impeachment, mm -hmm. you know, um, instead of saying, you know, his work, you know, he, he's a racist, you know, well, he used racist words, mm -hmm. you know, like call mm -hmm. a spade a spade. Mm -hmm. 
So I don't know if, if, how effective the opposition will be. And I, I think that's also because of the way our system is set up where you have a bicameral legislature hmm. where the House is controlled by the Democrats and the Senate is controlled by the Republicans. Hmm. So. Yeah, no, that, that, yeah. Yeah, so it's a similar kind of paralysis um, and, and a loss of... I was, I was listening to... Um, we have a, a radio show here called The Infinite Monkey Cage. Have you ever heard of this? There's no, no reason, I haven't. There's no reason that you would have. Well, it's, it's, it's on the BBC radio and it's a kind of science, popular science panel show or popular science discussion show with a couple of with a famous sort of uh, pop scientist and uh, comedian and, and they do kind of interesting science stuff and it's available as a podcast and it's really good actually um, but just this last week they did a special from um, Florida on the moon landings mm. on, the Apollo, on the Apollo program and they were interviewing um, a, a number of people who had or they were having a discussion with a number of people who had been involved in the program. And they were talking about the politics and why it was successful and how they managed to to bridge party divides and, and, and how it was a national... There was a sense of national endeavour that led to this great achievement. And you could... While, while these guys were too diplomatic to be explicit... The inference was clear. It was that um, you couldn't do that in modern America because there's simply no way that the the various political parties could could unite around an objective in that way. Yeah, um, that, that 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 that's gone from politics, and now it's a much dirtier and, and more personal and, and less. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, I think that's also. Yeah, I think that's probably that's probably true, isn't it? Um, and then the big question is whether this is just sort of uniquely Anglo-Saxon uh, <laughs> disease right now, or if it's something that we um, can expect to infect the rest of us. I don't know. But uh, listen, Jason, I wanted to um, make a link from you. Were, you were talking about the way politics is evolving in the States uh, and certainly on the progressive side, you're getting people saying, well, look, uh, it doesn't have to be this way. Look at other countries. Um, they managed to have, you know, free state healthcare and things like that. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to explore that a little bit. Um, attitudes. So firstly, awareness of the EU, attitudes towards the EU how the EU plays in American politics. I know a little bit of this from the Canadian side because I, I was a, a, a European diplomat in Canada for four years, about 10 years ago. And I saw that how the EU became a kind of political football almost in Canadian politics. Is is there much awareness in, in the States of the EU? And, and, and No. No. Um, NATO, yes. Yeah. But not the EU so much. But I think and I hope that that is changing. Um, just because, as you mentioned earlier, you know, I was recently in Brussels. Yeah. And, you know, the reason for that was that the delegation of the EU to the U.S. put on a study tour for U.S. teachers hmm. 
to go to Brussels for the week, learn about the EU, and then take that back to their classrooms. Hmm. So if you think about the application effect of that then, right? So if I have 100 students a year, and I say, hey, there's this thing called the EU, it's this really successful democratic project, it's led to peace on the continent, um, you know, there's a single market, and some other things about it, they're now aware of that. So that's 100 more people that are now aware of the EU. Hmm. Um, and if you get teachers involved in it, um, like me, who are really into the EU, <laughs> hmm. um, more and more students, the younger, kind of the post-Cold War generation who don't really know kind of, well, why does Europe matter sort of hmm. thing. Hmm. Um, you know, I think that's, I, th I hope that we're going to see that. Um, and I think also the EU delegation has a really interesting website um, that shows just how important EU trade is in each one of the 50 states, mm. um, where they kind of show what are the main exports and imports from the EU. Um, and so that's another way of showing, like, the EU matters. Trade mm. with the EU matters. Um, you know, we're a relevant actor. Mm. Uh, and then it's up to people, really, who aren't, you know, because I... You know, if you were to go even into the state assembly here, there might be there'd be very few people, politicians who know much about the EU, if anything. Yeah. But I get the sense that the few who do kind of have very polarized views of it. So you get the people, let's call them the sort of Tea Party types who have who, who, who've heard of this and they think that oh, it's literally in, in many cases, they think it's the Antichrist. They think it's, mm -hmm. you know, the forerunner of. The book of revelation and that the antichrist will come from the eu and, and yeah, i mean, I mean this sounds ridiculous but i've heard people seriously say this not just in the u.s so you get some really um very i would say batshit crazy um criticism of the eu um but then you get the other people who 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 then see the eu as being well this is what we could this is this is what we could be like or this is what we could have won and for, I'm, I'm thinking, for example, there was, um, do, you, do you remember, do you know a, a guy called Jeremy Rifkin? Yes. An, the author. Do you remember the book that he wrote about sort of... Um, Euro the European 15, Dream. Yeah, The European Dream. So I've, I've pulled it up here um, and the subtitle was How Europe's Vision of the Future is Quietly Eclipsing the American Dream. <laughs> so oh, yeah. That was written in 2004. That was published in 2004. But that's an excellent book. Hmm? It was an excellent book. Yeah, and I remember because I was in Canada at the time, uh, being the guy whose job it was to promote the EU in Canada, and this this got a lot of coverage. Well, I say a lot. I mean, it got it got coverage in in the kind of niche politics circles. As as with all of these things, it was effectively an internal political discussion in sure. the states and in Canada about well, where, where, you know, which direction do we want to be heading in. So it, it was kind of projecting itself on the EU. But nevertheless, yeah. obviously, for somebody like me who was responsible for promoting the EU, what a gift, you know, to say, well, look at this, you know, let's get this guy along to talk about his book because he's basically saying we should be like these guys. Um, so I, I, I wonder... So Brexit ties into all this because Brexit came at a point where I think it's fair to say... Um, the European dream, if you can call it such a thing, had taken some serious knocks and mm -hmm. we, we were very much losing momentum and, and self-belief, I think, at the time uh, that this happened. And, and I think Brexit itself reanimated 
the European dream a little bit. And oh yeah, and and I wonder if, if how how do you does that how you see it? I mean, how do you see it from where you are? Well, as someone who kind of follows what goes on in the EU, yes, I would agree with that. Um, in fact, I I think that right now we're at a point in time where. Um, the, this is a perfect opportunity for the EU to become or take advantage of sort of the, the leadership vacuum yeah. that the U.S. kind of historically has had. Um, and the EU, for the EU to say, look, we're leading by example in our practices and how we take care of our people, um, more of a soft power sort of approach almost, um, to fill the void and say, this is what we want for a world. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think it's an, it's an opportunity right now. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think I think that people on, on the Brussels side are, are very conscious of that, and um, a big theme of this outgoing commission um, in the last couple of years has been uh, strategic autonomy, mm-hmm. the strategic autonomy of the, of the EU. You know, well, when we can't rely on who we thought were our closest partners anymore, we need to be able to do stuff ourselves. We need to be able to take decisions, push agendas, espouse values that on our own. And strategic autonomy can extend from all sorts of things, from um, um, t- taking positions in the United Nations through to defense cooperation and all sorts of things. But then the other, and then, and then the other arm of that, of course, is effective multilateralism. It's about the EU being, as you say, the champion around the world of the rule of law, of the international rule of law, of, of, of multilateralism, of the institutions that the US and the UK created after the war. Yeah. It was essentially an Anglo-American fix for international relations after the war that gave us these multilateral systems. I mean, it's being a little bit simplistic, but yeah, effectively, that's, that's what happened. Well, and yeah, now that the U.S., I mean, under Trump is turning its back on multilateralism yeah. and, you know, talking about, you know, sovereignty, sovereignty, um, you know, you're not going to infringe upon our sovereignty and take away our rights and you're not yeah. going to tell us what to do. Yeah. Um, you know, that was one of the things, though, that, you know, when we were in Brussels and we went to all these different institutions was multilateralism kept coming up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I was really happy to hear that. Yeah. Like, it was really good for the other teachers to see that multilateralism is still something that's held dear um, by people outside the U.S. Oh, absolutely. I mean, for us, of course, it's. Um, I think there's there's profound fear that the multilateral system is just going to cease to function if you get these big free riders. You know, this is one area, for example, there was a very interesting recent um, EU strategy on China, uh, where China, you know, China's a complex partner uh, and there are all sorts of issues that we have with the Chinese. Um, But there are also areas where China can be and needs to be an ally, including the multilateral system. It's in China's benefit. It's, it's, in, it's to China's benefit f- for the multilateral system to, to continue to function, but maybe not in the way that China would like the most. So you know, it, it's how do you navigate that? That's a, that's a, yeah. that's a very tricky relationship to, to to navigate because you need we 
we can be the champions of the multilateral system, but we can't be, you know, we can't do it on our own by right. definition. If it's going right. to be a multilateral system, it requires uh, pretty much everybody else to be on board. And if you're going to get two or three big powers dropping out and beginning to ignore it, well, then it's then you're in trouble. So, yeah. Um, so, Jason, one other thing that I thought would be interesting to talk to you about is how you teach the EU then to your students. Uh, and for, I mean, I, I wondered if you could talk to us a little bit about how have you how have you talked about the recent European Parliament elections and about the EU top jobs that, that have recently been decided? Is that do you get into that level of detail? What's yeah? So one of the courses I teach is a comparative politics course. And in that course, we study six countries, one of which is the UK. And then part of also the curriculum is to talk about supranational organizations, which, of course, is the EU. Um, And so, you know, we followed throughout the year, um, you know, what was happening with Brexit and the different speeches and the votes that were taking place with Theresa May and, you know, the votes of confidence. Mm. Um, And so my students were actually like, it just so happened that the class was at the end of the day, usually when the votes would be announced Hmm. in parliament. And so they would come like running into my classroom (laughs) to find out, like, have they announced the votes yet? What's going on with the votes? I mean, they they were really fascinated by this whole thing, Um, which is great because you don't see too many students interested in domestic politics of a foreign country. (laughs) So... So we talk about kind of the the political system, the electoral system. um, But then with the EU, um, you know, I usually try and do in that class, it's more of a here are the main institutions. Here's how they work. Um, Don't be confused by the three councils, you know, because one of them isn't even a member of the EU or part of the EU. Um, We talk a little bit about the treaties and the euro. And then um, my other class, we do sort of an EU simulation um, where we talk about migration and the refugee crisis and how the EU has responded to that. Uh, and so each student is representing a member state and has to kind of, you know, become their head of government or head of state um, and research that country's position on what's been going on. Um, and then when we also look at climate change, we take a look at the EU um, as sort of an example of, of you know, kind of forward-thinking policies um, and the same thing with the sustainable development goals. We talk about the EU in that context, um, because what's really weird is that in the U.S., the sustainable development goals, you don't hear anything about them in political discourse mm. at all. Mm. Um, whereas you see that all the time in Europe. At the European level, certainly. Not so much in UK politics either, I'm afraid, but yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting um, because I mean, I, 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 I don't think that there would be that many sixth formers in the UK that would get that degree of... Uh, education on, on, on the EU even though you know until, until now we've been part of it yeah so when when uh, the elections when the, when the European elections took place um, so I kind of went over you know here's what the voting system is like um, and in fact the European Parliamentary Research Service had a really good publication on the Dahan method um, <laughs> yeah <laughs> Which is a little bit dense, um, but because it's their advanced students, they were, you know, able to, we talked a little bit about kind of, you know, proportional representation and, you know, proportional representation among sort of the youth, especially my students, definitely was attractive to them. 
Um, seeing though that they don't sit by country, that they sit by party group is something we kind of go over. Hmm. Uh, and I show them some pictures of, you know, here's what it looks like inside. And I actually show them the booths with all the different languages. Hmm. And I say, you know, like this, they, they want to make sure that everybody's language is, you know, as, as much as possible heard. Um, and they find that really fascinating. Hmm. I mean, just, you know, when I took my students over there a couple years ago, um, that was one of the things that I think they asked just about every person we talked with was, you know, how many languages do you speak? Hmm. Um, and they were just so amazed, you know, that the average answer, I think, was, you know, somewhere around four or five. Hmm. You know, whereas here in the U.S., you know, it's obviously English. Hmm. And then you take, maybe you take a foreign language for four, maybe five years. Hmm. And then that's about it. Hmm. Um, the top the top jobs, oh, I don't know. Um, the, the, the debate over the top jobs and kind of the, the behind the scenes, you know, who's is it the Spitzing kind of Dutton or, you know, is it going to be somebody else? We didn't get too much into that. Hmm. Um, I mean, I told them about it and told them to follow it. Um, so, hmm. yeah, so I guess that's that's how I teach it. <laughs> and do you so I mean, that's I think the comparative government is, is that's the interesting angle. And so when you when you look at the um, EU institutions, do you, do you compare that to the national institutions in the U.S.? I mean, how does that work? Well, there's no real good direct comparisons with the exception of the European Parliament and Congress. Yeah. Um, and so, but the, there, is a par, there is a European Parliament liaison office in D.C., and on their website, they actually have a really good, they tried to, to do a comparison to the best of their ability, yeah. talking about, you know, because you've got, you know, the European Council, and then you have the Council of the EU, yeah. and then you have Parliament, um, it's sort of the big kind of three in the legislative triangle, so to speak, yeah. uh, and the Commission, of course, right? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, but here in the U.S., we don't have anything really like any of those see it's interesting because when i was in canada i used to do a lot of talks um as part of my job i would go around to to, to universities and, and and colleges and i would give give a talk about the eu um mm -hmm. and i had a set of powerpoint slides and i would i had a, a um i was really proud of this one graphic that i did where i morphed the canadian federal system into the EU system to show sure. people, you know, you, you guys, you think that the EU is like NAFTA, but the EU isn't like NAFTA. The EU is like Canada. The EU is like Canada for this reason. And I would sort of morph the Court of Justice into the sort of Supreme Court. I would morph the, um, the, the, the provinces into the member states. You know. And it, was, it worked quite well um, pre-Lisbon. And I was just on the last podcast. I don't know if you got a chance to listen to it. We, we only just put it out a couple of days ago. But um, I have been struck having this conversation recently with a few people on Twitter, um, how actually since then, which was over 10 years ago, with the Lisbon Treaty, the way that the EU is set up, the institutional setup of the EU has morphed a bit. I mean, it's morphed a bit away from the, the, the parliamentary system that I was talking mm -hmm. about into a more presidential system where the European Council... Um, has even more power than it used to. Um, 
And I'm a couple of bits of feedback that we had for the podcast was that some listeners would be quite keen to hear more about that and how these things work. Um, that might be something for us to come back to. Seeing as you're an educator, who, yeah. <laughs> whose job it is, whose, whose profession it is to explain this stuff to, to, to people who often will not have had any idea of it at all before they went to your class. Maybe we should do that one day. That could be, well, I don't think we've got time now, but that could be quite interesting, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that was, you know, that was what we were in Brussels for, yeah. you know, to, to learn about the EU. And and obviously the U.S., you know, the teachers in the U.S. had, a, I mean, really confusing with the councils, right? Yeah. The difference between the councils. <laughs> well, you know, that's, that's some serious arcane stuff that um, most Europeans wouldn't wouldn't know either. I mean, I, yeah. I had another conversation like that the other day with somebody. They get that the Council of Europe isn't the EU, but then when you start debating, well, what, what what's the difference between the European Council and the Council of the EU? I mean, and then people start their people's heads start to hurt. Yeah, but there is a very important difference. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, but the import the, the, that important difference has diminished and and that there it's become a grey area. Over the, this is this is the problem as, as I see it. Anyway, we, we we mustn't disappear down that rabbit hole. Um, well, so when I I think then that you know people still need to look at how the EU really is a positive experiment. Like this is a positive group of of members. It's a positive experience for people. Mm. You know, in the wake of the U, in the wake of Brexit, when you have all these people bashing the EU, is to realize you know no, the EU is actually it's incredible. What's happened? What, what, what the EU has done since it was established, or you know, the, the European Coal and Steel community was established. But mm. it, some really interesting things there, mm. uh, and positive. It's a positive story. Mm. There's nothing but positive. I mean, it really is. It's positive. <laughs> and that's what's missing from our from our discussion about it. I mean, it's still it's missing. People aren't hearing this positive story, which is which is why it's great to hear that, hear you talking about it that way. Yeah, so I think if you know if, if the powers that be within the EU public di- you know public diplomacy aspect or communications department start you know just really like look yeah. at everything we've accomplished. Well, I mean to be fair, I, th- I think that yeah, I think they do. I think the problem is reaching the middleman, reaching the multipliers, reaching the amplifiers, you know, reaching the people that are um, willing to push that message. Um, yeah. Jason, is there anything else you'd like to talk about while we've got you on? Oh, no, just keep your heads up. <laughs> I was going to, you know, we do the lie of the week. We do this every week. We try and sort of pinpoint one particular lie that's really caught our attention and annoyed us. And we, we, we uh, can you, I'm putting you on the spot. I've got I've got a fallback. If you can't think of one off the top of your head, I've got something else I'm going to ask you to do. But can you think of a lie of the week? <laughs> <laughs> Anything that Trump says? Um, yeah, well, there you go. Britain's Britain Trump. Boris Johnson being Britain Trump. Did you hear? Yeah. That? Oh yeah. Yeah. There you go. They're both populists, but I, I think there's a difference in. I mean, I I, I don't know. Is, is Boris Johnson seen as racist as Trump? Pretty much. Okay. Well, they're okay. So, yeah. Otherwise, I mean, uh, today the State Department and, you know, and uh, Secretary Pompeo talking about in the wake of 
you know, the appointment of Johnson to become prime minister talking about, you know, we're going to keep up the special relationship. Hmm. I don't know. I mean, in, how are you going to keep this up when relations are deteriorating? Hmm. You know, within the past couple of weeks since, you know, since ambassador, um, the, the British ambassador, you know, all that came out. Hmm. How are you going to actually say relations are going to be better than ever before? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that the obviously Trump thinks that it's only good news for Boris Johnson if people see him as the Britain Trump. <laughs> of course, it's not. Uh, it is definitely not. Trump is not. It's, I'm pretty sure. I don't know. I haven't seen statistics on this, but I would be amazed if being seen in any way as identified with Trump would be considered to be a vote, uh, an electoral advantage for any British politician. Um, but according to Trump, they love him over there. Well, there's a year of the lie of the week. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, no, I, I, some people do. I, I was, I last week, I was, I was in um, Dorset. I was camping at the weekend in the south of England, and there was this guy wearing a t-shirt saying, the t-shirt said, "Trump won. Suck it up, snowflakes." <laughs> I looked at this guy I was like are you wearing that ironically why, why would why would a, a British person wear a t-shirt like that just walking around a, a they, small they, seaside town in Dorset pardon were they British did you talk to them or no no no, no but no but most likely depending because of where you were I mean why why would an American be in Swanage I don't know I mean maybe yeah. maybe I've answered my own question it was Swanage I don't know it was like what <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a really bizarre T-shirt. I found that I found that extraordinary. But anyway, I, maybe I mean you see this. Maybe this is it. Maybe I'm in a bubble. Maybe this is my bubble that I'm I'm not connecting with the wider public. Maybe yeah, I don't know. Um, before we finish, it is really important that we discuss what's on your T-shirt. Yeah, I'll, I'll post a picture of this to Twitter. So I'm going to so read this it was out. A- so this was a gift from one of my students. Can you read it out? Can you see? I can't. I can't right now because it's upside down on my body. <laughs> All right. So I will read it out. So it's a, it's like a de- dictionary definition. And it says, Brexit, noun, and then the phonetic spelling is totally crap. And then the undefined being negotiated by the unprepared in order to get the unspecified for the uninformed. <sighs> Whoa. There you go. How many people stop you and ask you about that T-shirt? Well, I, I had somebody ask me today, actually, because I was at the dentist before this, and I don't think she really knew what Brexit was all about. She just kind of read the shirt and said, oh, that's nice. <laughs> it really isn't. It really isn't yeah. nice. <laughs> but when I, like when I wear it at school, um, I mean... My students know, you know, they, because they follow it and we talk about it on a, on a week, you know, almost daily basis. So are you like are you like known in school for being like that? That crazy uh, commie, Jason, or Mr. Uh, Carl, or are you? I am. I'm the one that I would say is probably like there's the guy who what is he still doing teaching high school? When is he going to be moving to Europe? <laughs> So I'm, I'm, I mean, a lot of people. Yeah. So why are you still here? Why, why aren't you? Mo- <laughs> yeah. Well, you know. Yeah. Okay. So you're a bit of an outlier, or? A- oh yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. 
Well, we're we're, we're very happy to to have you <laughs> on our side. Yeah, I'm happy to be the outlier. <laughs> okay, listen, Jason, we've been talking for ages, so um, I think we need to wrap up. But um, sure. this is great. Well, I'm really glad we did on. this. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks so much, and um, yeah, we'll see you back at some point for the um, EU 101. Yeah, definitely. All right. Thanks, Jason. Thanks, Chris. Cheers. We're going up the wrong way. We're going to.